Welcome to episode 39 of The History Files. We're recording this in the third week of January, 2016, a rainy, dark, yet blissfully earthquake and tornado-free Washington state. Yep, we don't have a whole lot to complain about around here. With that said, let's just go ahead and uh, get right into this week's headlines. January 9th, 1570. An increasingly unstable and paranoid Tsar Ivan the Terrible kills 1,000 to maybe 2,000 citizens in the massacre of Novgorod, possibly the most horrific event of his Oprichnina, a state policy implemented between 1565 and 1572 that featured secret police, repression, public executions, and land confiscation. Sadly, something that doesn't seem to have uh, not escaped Russia for (laughs) many centuries thereafter. Yeah. January 11th, 1770. Rhubarb, used medicinally by the Chinese for thousands of years, is imported into the U.S. Actually, it was still the colonies for the first time. Technically, it's a vegetable, but has become a staple dessert ingredient in the West. I, for one, look forward... Well... (laughs) That's you. You look forward to uh, <laughs> rhubarb pie season every spring. Um, I look forward to it because I get to eat rhubarb pie. Anyway, we have several plants growing in the garden, and yes, we do love our rhubarb pie. January 9th, 1793. Jean-Pierre Blanchard makes the first balloon flight in North America. Already a seasoned balloonist, Blanchard had already made 44 previous ascensions around Europe. January 9th of 1776, Thomas Paine published his pamphlet, Common Sense, setting forth arguments in favor of independence. It's one of the best essays on perseverance in pursuit of one's goals out there and a marvelous piece of patriotic literature at the same time. January 12th, 1812, the first cargo shipped down the Mississippi River. With an initial fleet of 20 boats, by the 1830s, the heyday of the Mississippi River boat would be in full swing with more than 1,200 boats moving goods north and south. Construction of rail lines after the Civil War, along with the advent of barge traffic, eventually contributed to the demise of the romantic era of side and stern-wheeled river steamers. January 9th, 1912, U.S. Marines invade Honduras, yet another aspect of the Banana Wars. If you caught our last episode, you heard a lot more about this topic. That's right. We've got a couple of extra pieces today, thanks to Psycon contributor John Matthews. Um, uh, Fun archaeological stuff. I guess they just found in the last, I don't know, month or so, a Rev War era ship, Revolutionary War, in a construction site in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a really neat article. Uh, I urge you to go see that. It seems as though there was a brick building built within inches of it. Uh, they somehow missed hitting the boat. Oh, when they put uh, the initial building in. Yeah, you know, years and years oh and years goodness. ago. Uh, but it's 
it's in very good condition, you know, for having sat in the, sat in the mud for, you know, the last two and a half centuries or so. Well, it'll be fun to see that develop. And also, on the other side of the United States and much farther north, archaeologists have discovered parts of two 19th century whaling ships up in the Chukchi Sea off the north coast of Alaska, where they sank along with more than 30 other ships after becoming trapped in the ice in 1871. More than 1,200 sailors were left stranded, and although there were no casualties in in this incident, it's thought to be one of the factors in the decline of the American whaling industry. A couple other factors in that was, one, they were running out of whales, and secondly, a Polish chemist was looking uh, for a way to make synthetic vodka and instead invented kerosene. And the U.S. <laughs> the U.S. You know uh, that pretty much sums up my thoughts on vodka. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it well, it burns just as well. Yeah, uh, but kerosene, of course, is a, a byproduct of, of petroleum. And uh, a young man by the name of um, John D. Rockefeller was just starting to move into the petroleum industry in the early 1870s, and he's the one that really turned on the lights in rural America with, with kerosene. Prior to that, whale oil had been the standard lighting thing for most mm-hmm. most people that didn't have gas at the time. And uh, running out of whales and whaling ships and things like yeah. that, uh, it was a, there was a, literally an energy crisis at the time, and it was filled by kerosene. Hmm. Interesting. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Okay, today in our on our sort of media section, film, TV, literature, whatever, it came to my attention uh, on um, a couple weeks ago. Somebody posted a uh, picture on my Twitter feed of a really nice. Uh, I guess bas relief. I don't want to call it a mural on the side. I thought it was on the side of a hospital, but it turns out it's on the side of a public health building in Atlanta, I think. But anyway, it showed, you know, it featured the um, death being held away by by a Greek god brandishing a caduceus, which is what we, we think of as the symbol of medicine. It's the winged staff with the two snakes twining on it. The thing is, that's not the right symbol. It's been, it's people, that's the symbol of, isn't that the symbol of Hermes? Yeah, it's the yeah, symbol Hermes. of Hermes. Yeah. And it always drives me nuts when I see a caduceus used in a medical, I mean, it's, isn't, it's like the U.S. Army sign for the medical corps is oh, absolutely. the winged staff with the two, staff with the two snakes. Right, whereas it's supposed to be a single Right, snake. it's supposed to be the staff of Asclepius, I'm going to mispronounce that, but, but, you know, you've all seen them. And the winged staff, it, it is a symbol of Hermes. He he was the god of commerce, eloquence, and theft, among other things. Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so perfect maybe, for our medical industry. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it is the right symbol for the medical industry. Anyway, the right symbol should be just a rough staff, no wings, with only one snake, which is the symbol of Asclepius. He's thought to be... Uh, a legitimate person in history. He was a skilled physician who practiced medicine around 1200 BC. He was mentioned in the Iliad, and he eventually sort of morphed into the Greek god of healing. And they say, oh, well, he's the son of Apollo and Coronis, a nymph. Um, If you're into astronomy, you'll know him as the constellation 
Opiucus. I'm probably mispronouncing that too. Opiucus. Opiucus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> O-P-I-U-C-H-U-S. Anyway, the serpent bearer, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. I also want to mention, um, just now streaming on Netflix these days is a, a nice British BBC series called The Paradise. It's a costume drama. They've got two seasons on there right now. It's I uh, Gordon hasn't watched any of it yet, and he probably won't. I don't think he'd get into it. It's sort of the TV equivalent of a romance novel. It's very loosely inspired by A Bonheur de Dame, which, or The Lady's Paradise, by Emile Zola. Oh, no, Zola. <laughs> yeah, published in 1883. I'd give it a 7 out of 10, and maybe that's too high. But, I, you know, I find it entertaining. It's got a good cast. It's got great sets. It's an interesting story. It's about a young lady who's come into the city from the country. Her uncle has a, a small uh, millinery, not a millinery, a small, you know, ladies um, dress, dress shop. I, I'm forgetting my lingo. And it's across the street from this gigantic, for the time, Depart basically a proto department store, and he's not getting uncle's not getting enough business to take her on and support her, so she gets a job at the department store, and thus you know there's the setting for our story. It's basically a soap opera. Uh, again, I give it a seven out of ten. Sometimes the writing's a little uneven. There's a little some size. Excuse me. Sometimes the dialogue's a little stilted. Sometimes the editing feels a little rushed. But and it gets and it, for me it gets some points off for some subpar costuming. Some of the gowns, especially on some of the lead characters, are kind of sloppy. It looks like either they're not wearing a corset or they're just the gown. They got the gown from you know costume supply and they didn't bother tailoring it to fit the actress. There's some weird clownish trim, unstarched collars on some of the men. Oh, the horror. Yes, I mean, that's kind of appalling. That just isn't done. No, and some of the hair is a little unrealistic. One of my bugaboos in historical dramas is this story is set in the 1870s, and in the 1870s, women did not part their hair on the side. And no. And our, our principal, our lead character, while it's a lovely updo and everything, first of all, it's way too complicated for a shop girl. She wouldn't have time to be doing her hair that fancy every morning. And secondly, they parted it on the side, which is pretty to our modern eye, but to somebody in the mid-19th century, it would be bizarre. They're jarring. It's almost as bad as a man parting his hair in the middle. Yeah, yeah, it which just isn't done until the end of the 19th century. So, but, you know... That's picking nits. It's mostly good. It, the leads are very appealing. It does feel like a soap opera. So that will appeal to some people. But as far as binge watching, it gets a, it's a little drama after a while. So it's fun in small doses. I recommend it. The Paradise on Netflix. We also uh, recently watched a review on YouTube of The Hateful Eight, which is right now, as we record this, in theaters. It's Tarantino's latest film. It's a Western. He he's scored it with Ennio Morricone music. It's got an insanely fabulous cast. It's I'm not a Tarantino fan, so I'm probably not going to go see it, but the review is very interesting. Um, I like Kurt Russell. I don't think I'll bother seeing a Tarantino film. Yeah, he's just... I. It's it's and they pretty much sum up my feelings about Tarantino. Oh, great story, great art, great characters, and then you know a giant bloodbath happens, and like, everybody dies, and everybody dies. It's like okay, Hamlet in the snow. And your point being, I think he just does it because he can do it. 
So there you go. Today we're sponsored again by Audible.com. So if you'd like your very own copy of The Ladies' Paradise by Emile Zola, or perhaps a book about Greek myths, check out Audible.com where listeners to The History Files can pick up a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Just go to www.audibletrial.com slash historyfiles to take advantage of this opportunity to try out their service. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love, including Hazardous Duty by Colonel David Hackworth, which neatly ties into our main topic today, which we are going to combine with Gordon's Gun Closet segment because we knew he was going to have a boatload of things to say about it, it being today's topic, which is... The AR-15 M16-M4 Rifles by Eugene Stoner. I seem to remember you're not too familiar with Colonel Colt's revolver. You want the shotgun? No, I prefer the Thompson. So today, what I want to talk about is the M16. The M16 is sort of ubiquitous today insofar as being the standard military rifle of not only the United States and Canada, but um, used widely in uh, the NATO countries and, of course, throughout the Third World, any client states of the United States. The <clears throat> the design by Eugene Stoner, originally called the AR-15 after the corporation he wa- worked for, Armalite, uh, design number 15, had its nucleus in the early post-World War II period. One of the things that had been noticed even as early as World War One, was that the standard rifles of that day and age of World War I and World War II pretty much were too powerful. They're more powerful than they needed to be. They overkilled at the ranges in which people were shooting each other during those wars. The cartridges, such as the you know, .30-06 or the three hundred three British, the 7.9 by 57 Mauser, 6.5 by 55 Swedish, uh, 7.62x54R Russian, they were developed in the last decade or so of the 19th century, early 20th century, and they were designed specifically for really long-range shooting. It had been thought uh, that, you know, wow, we're increasing our range. People will just stand there, and we can shoot at them at all these increased ranges. What they failed to consider was that also with the adoption of machine guns, people just wouldn't stand there and get shot at anymore. <laughs> and so people started digging holes in the ground in order to avoid getting shot at. And since you're in the ground, you can actually get closer and closer to one another. Thus, you have the trench warfare of World War One. One of the responses to this uh, by first the Germans and then um, an American designer, uh, John Thompson, they came up with the submachine gun. It was designed to take a pistol round. The German MP18 uh, was designed to take the standard German 9mm Parabellum pistol cartridge for their Luger, which is now also the 9mm NATO cartridge. And the Thompson, of course, was designed to take the caliber 45 ACP, the standard American uh, pistol cartridge. Both of them are, are certainly adequately powerful for very close range. And in a trench situation, it was great. Uh, the Thompson, in fact, was nicknamed the trench broom, designed to sweep your enemies away from you in your trench. However, 
they suffered from the the problem of being not, having not quite enough range. They're fairly, you know, if you use the right techniques, they're fairly cheap to build. And in World War II, the Germans and the Russians especially made millions of these submachine guns. Everybody used them. The Russians used them extensively. They're they're two major designs: the uh, PPSH. 41 and the PPS 43 were made in untold millions. Entire battalions of guys, every single one of them would be issued with one of these submachine guns and they were would ride on tanks. You didn't need to have any long range because the tank's main gun did, <laughs> had plenty of range, so you didn't really need to worry about that. It was getting up close and very uncomfortable with your opponent, which wasn't the important thing. But there was definitely seen to be a need for something in between. When I was a kid, I thought submachine gun was something used on a submarine. Oh, <laughs> I guess that makes a certain <laughs> amount of sense. A, a machine gun for a submarine. Okay. It basically means small or under submachine gun, uh, under machine gun. Anyway, um, the Germans were the first to really recognize this. In fact, they had recognized it in the, in the, between wars period and had done some studies on it. And by 1942, we're actively working on what Hitler, in fact, anointed the Sturmgewehr or assault rifle. It was what was is designated an intermediate cartridge, the 7.9 by 33 millimeter cartridge or eight millimeter Kurtz, if you will, or short. It was designed for first the MP. 43, MP44, and finally the Sturmgewehr 45. They were, they were great. They were kind of heavy. They were about 10 pounds, but they fired, they're what they call select fire weapons. They, uh, select fire means that with the flip of a switch, you can fire either semi-automatically. In other words, you pull the trigger for each shot being, you know, bang, 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 or flip the switch and it goes fully auto. You just pull the trigger and it keeps shooting until you either release your Let finger go. or the magazine runs dry, one or the other. Um, the, uh, the Germans were mightily impressed with this. And also the main, I guess, recipients of the, <laughs> of, of the, um, the force of these weapons, the Russians, were also mightily impressed Was the Sturmgewehr belt-fed or mag-fed? Magazine. It took a 30-round magazine, which is the same number of rounds as the submachine guns would hold, at least the, the German submachine guns, uh, and Amer most American and whatnot. Anyway, hmm. um, 30 was considered to be a good number of rounds for um, a select-fire weapon to have because it has a good reserve, but it's not too darn heavy to, yeah. to drag around. Yeah, people um, who, who don't play a lot with guns don't realize just how heavy a big old bucket of bullets are. Yeah. It's a lot of metal. It's a lot of lead. And mm -hmm. anything more than, than 30 rounds, that's becoming a brick. Yeah, like the, the, the Thompson submachine gun originally came with a 50-round drum. And 50 rounds of forty five is mm -hmm. about the same, almost the same weight as the gun itself. Yeah. Uh one of the Russian submachine guns, the PPSH-41, it came with a 71-round drum magazine. Eek. And while it was only a 30 caliber, still 71 rounds in a mm -hmm. steel drum magazine is pretty darn heavy. Of course, it gave the Russian soldiers a lot of firepower. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but still, it was kind of awkward. The uh, Russians, again, the chief res- <laughs> recipients of the largesse of the Sturmgewehr, uh, were mightily impressed, and they immediately set work to develop their own versions. And the first thing they did, which was quite intelligent, was they developed the M43 cartridge. Uh, it's a 7.62 caliber or 30 caliber uh, bullet uh, with a 39 millimeter cartridge length. So it's a 7.62 by 39, the M43. The first rifle that was designed for it was actually what's called the SKS, the Simonov carbine, Simonov semi-automatic carbine. And it saw combat duty in the very last months of World War II and was very well received. Mythology would have it that a tanker sergeant named uh, Mikhail um, Kalishnikov, actually in in, uh, his recovery from wounds received in combat, uh, designed his great invention, the Kalishnikov rifle, or the AK, uh, of 1947. But there's an awful lot of design in there that is... um, well, shall we say, very German. <laughs> it, the probability is that he was used for a certain amount of propaganda, and the Russians used their captured German scientists. Uh, oh, so Kalashnikov design. didn't design the Kalashnikov? Well, he probably designed some of it. Oh, okay. But he had help. He didn't design it in a vacuum. He didn't design it in a vacuum. In fact, the safety is a straight ripoff of the... Uh, Remington Model 1908 semi-automatic rifle. Huh. So anyway, uh, it it that's not to denigrate the design at all. It's a marvelous design. It's um, the first ones were made out of machined milled steel. Pardon me. The first ones were made out of stamped steel. They couldn't quite get it right, so they converted to machined steel. So that's what the real AK-47 is. Uh, later on, the Soviets redesigned it to take a stamped receiver. Uh, which is the AKM. So 90% of the AKs out there today are actually AKMs, or the modified version. Um, They're very simple. They're very simple to build. In fact, if you go online, you can find um, (laughs) a fellow built one from a shovel. And to our European uh, English listeners, yes, I know the difference between a spade and a shovel. This is a shovel, a nice flat edge thing. The guy was actually looking for an interesting thing to use for a buttstock, and he found a, sh- a shovel. So he used the wood from the shovel for the, for the stock buttstock. And, and the blade for the... Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he, he has a forge and stuff, and he just pounded this thing into an AK-47 receiver. <laughs> and then he bought a parts kit and put the whole thing together. And he has a perfectly serviceable semi-automatic AKM... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that works great. Built from a shovel. Yes, you too can do this. <laughs> um, but it's making me think of our our segment we did a couple of weeks ago on uh, Kyber Pass rifles. Yeah, well, this is right up there with a the Kyber Pass, and in <clears throat> fact, they make plenty of AKs in the Kyber Pass. This trend towards this this assault rifle, which technically means something that is select fire, fires both full or semi-automatic. Uh, and the intermediate cartridge, fully embraced by the Eastern Bloc of countries under the under the leadership of the Russians, the Soviet Union, not so much in the West. The Americans, although they certainly 
received some of the largesse of the MP44, uh, weren't as impressed because we had our excellent M1 rifle, the Garand, which fired a very powerful 30 6 cartridge. And we were very happy with the amount, with the range and accuracy of that rifle. We also had adopted the M1 carbine, which was, um, as we discussed the other day, uh, an, a smaller cartridge. It's not quite a pistol cartridge, but it's certainly nothing like a rifle cartridge. Uh, great little gun for people to carry that have need for something to defend themselves with, but don't want to carry a big rifle around and probably can't hit the broadside of a barn with a pistol. So me. <laughs> yeah. So there, so the United States was quite happy with its stuff. And when the North Atlantic treaty Alliance um, or organization rather was put together in the post-World War II period, the United States was very adamant that although they wanted to have a universal cartridge in fact, perhaps a universal rifle, it had to be of similar power to the uh, the uh, uh, 30-06 cartridge, which meant a very, a very large, heavy rifle was going to be needed. Um, Fabrique Nationale, which is a uh, um, manufacturing organization in Herstal, Belgium, had put together a really good design. It's actually a pre-war design, but they put it together using the um, 8x33 or 7.9x33 German cartridge. Um, That's FN? Right, Fabrique Nationale FN. And um, the British tried out a 7mm cartridge that they were very happy with. Both both of these basically um, intermediate style cartridges, very much like the M43 Russian cartridge. But the United States, us being the boss of NATO, uh, pretty much put the kibosh on that and insisted on a much heavier cartridge and the 7.62 by 51 NATO cartridge was developed and adopted. It's the, um, for some, anybody who, um, civilian in the civilian world is called a 308 Winchester. It's not quite as powerful as 30 out six, but, but still plenty powerful and, uh, shorter. So it's more amenable to, um, to semi-automatic actions. It's also uh, was used in machine guns and stuff, so it's got plenty of range and accuracy and all that stuff. But if you're going to design an infantry rifle around this, it's probably not going to do very well fully automatic. The reason for this is fully automatic rounds, well, powerful rounds on full, full auto and a light rifle tend to go anywhere other than where you're shooting. Oh. Um, they tend to, <laughs> to climb, the muzzle climbs dramatically, and you put a lot of holes in the air and a lot of lead way down range, but, but not on your target. I'm having visions of Mogadishu and guys running around with those awful sheet metal guns. And I mean, AK-47. Well, those two, yeah. <laughs> well, but, but the AK is, is designed to be controllable. The guns that came out, the rifles that were adopted by NATO were not on fully automatic. So the, uh, American M14 rifle and the Belgian uh, FAL or Fusil Automatique Liège. Um, oh, pardon me, it's not Liège, it's uh, Légère. That's right, light. <laughs> so light automatic rifle, which was adopted by virtually everybody else. They had to use them as semi-automatic rifles. So it was 
really not much of an improvement over the M1 Garand from World War II other than having a 20-round magazine. That's, that's the only real improvement. Mm. But this was due to American insistence on long-range riflemen, you know, the riflery. Um, enter Eugene Stoner. Eugene Stoner had been hired by uh, Fairchild Aircraft, which owned Armalite, uh, to design something to get in, you know to submit to these American trials, and he came up with what, with what was called the AR-10 design. Uh, one of the things coming out of World War II were some marvelous technologies for aircraft design and construction that had completely bypassed the the gun industry, the firearms market. Firearms. Um, were made from either machine steel or, as of World War II, they started stamping them out, but still out of fairly high-quality steel. What Stoner did was he started using aircraft technology, using very light materials such as aluminum, stamped, machined, or um, investment cast or forged aluminum, and uh, plastic, and all kinds of other things that were a complete anathema to most gun makers, but you're not making it to look good. You're making it to work good. Yeah, making it to issue to guys out in the field. Exactly. And the AR-10 rifle, which was submitted, was worked very well, but it had a fatal flaw. One of the president of Fairchild had decided that he wanted to issue to send the um, the army testing group the very lightest possible rifle, and so it had a uh, the barrel was a very light steel core surrounded by some kind of fiber and it burst during testing and so the army just said no we're not going to test it anymore we're sick of this yeah. and unfortunately because of that decision um, a huge opportunity was wasted by um, well for everybody when was this this is 19 this is mid 50s okay like 1955 um, but in 1957, the Army issued out a request for a very light rifle for, like, the uh, Green Berets and whatnot for the Special Forces. It would take a 5.56-millimeter uh, cartridge that was designed up from the sporting rifle cartridge, the 222 Remington, sometimes called a triple deuce. They increased the neck length a little bit and called it the 223 Remington. And this is the 5.56 by... Um, by 45 caliber cartridge. So Stoner, with this new uh, cartridge to use, this very small cartridge, again, 5.56 is a 22 caliber bullet, uh, he came up with a much smaller design version of the AR-10, and it was the 15th design to come out, so he called it the AR-15. Oh, okay. again, again, it used a lot of... Uh, Space-age technology, literally space-age technology of aluminum and plastics and things like that, and came in at about uh, seven and a half pounds. When you compare that with a, uh, it had a loaded 20-round magazine at about seven and a half pounds compared to an M14 with loaded magazine at ten and a half pounds. Uh, for an infantryman, that's a, a major savings. Oh, sure. Also, the ammunition being so much lighter meant that an infantryman could carry twice as much ammunition into battle for the same weight and size. So there were some people looking ahead and thought that this was a great idea. One of them was, um, was Curtis LeMay, who was the chief of the Air Force. Curtis LeMay, uh, not my favorite character, 
uh, he, <laughs> if you've watched Dr. Strangelove, then, um, General Turgeson is kind of, <laughs> Buck uh. Turgeson is, is pretty much based on him. Uh, yeah, he, he, he and Bomber Harris had a whole lot in common and he thought that nuking most of the world was a great idea, mm. but he was also adamant that his air force be given, you know, the best available weaponry to defend their air bases and the M16 or that pardon me, the AR-15 seemed to fit that bill. Um, some of them were also sent to the Republic of South Vietnam and, uh, the Vietnamese recognized that this was just the thing for them because it was much smaller, much lighter with much less recoil imp uh, impact, uh, to the shooter uh, just the thing for Vietnamese soldiers who were oh, about a third smaller than your average American soldier. So when the United States became heavily involved in Vietnam, uh, our special forces troops started carrying this AR-15. And so it was adopted by the Army, at least in small numbers, as the M-16. Because there actually was already an M-15 rifle. It was a heavy-barreled version of the M-14 rifle, which is nothing more than a uh, upgraded M1 Garand, but this M16 worked great. It had there was nothing but rave reviews from the uh, from the users. It was light. It was accurate. It was quite powerful for what it was. It didn't have a huge amount of range. You know, 500 to 600 yards was about max. But in a jungle, <laughs> you don't need that much. So it was mm -hmm. it was it was well very well received. The uh, Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, who was, of course, in the cabinet of John F. Kennedy, uh, looked at these reports and thought, well, maybe there's something to this. And he also was given reports that the M14 program at Springfield, Massachusetts, or the U.S. Army Arsenal in Springfield, was having problems, and they were not going to be able to supply the numbers necessary, um, despite what a lot of uh, modern shooters think the M14 had a lot of teething problems. It had lots of problems. M14 or M16? M14. Okay. Which was the 762 by 51 308 or 308 caliber rifle that the US had adopted to replace the M1 Garand. It's really not as good a rifle as a Garand. There were a lot of improvements that weren't and um the only good thing about it is it takes a box magazine. I'm confused because we were just talking about the M16 and now you're talking about the M14. Right. Uh, because the M14 wasn't being able to be made in sufficient quantities. Oh, that's the one that they really wanted to be sending. Well, this is what the Army wanted. Oh, okay. McNamara, however, given that the Army was not able to produce enough of these and needed a lot of rifles to send to Vietnam because of our increased presence in Vietnam, basically told the Army to stop making the M14s and start buying M16s. Oh, ho. This was all well and good because there were some good reports of the M16, but there were some problems with it too. It still was a a, um, a very new technology. It didn't wasn't fully developed, and one of the biggest shortcomings it had was it did not have a chrome-lined barrel. The Russians, even the Japanese in World War II, had long since adopted a chrome-lined barrel sleeve for their rifles, uh, which basically reduces the amount of corrosion that you're going to get from powder fouling and primer fouling, although the United States was using 
non-corrosive primers in their ammunition, still there's a certain amount of corrosion that can can happen, especially if you go into triple canopy jungle. Uh, Nasty, <laughs> humid environment. Exactly, yeah. which was lots of Vietnam. And so coupled with this, with the lack of a chrome-lined barrel and chamber in these rifles, and it turned out that um, DuPont was just not, even though they claimed they would be able to, they were not able to produce sufficient amounts of the powder that the rifle was designed to shoot. And this powder, which is perfectly good stuff, um, it just, they could only make it in fairly small quantities. Perfectly enough for sports shooters. There's plenty for sports shooters, but when you start arming several million men with the stuff and need, you know, thousands of rounds for each one, um, not so much. So the army went to Olin Matheson Corporation, which owned Winchester, and had them produce a powder that produced the same, actually even improved velocity out of the rifle, but was very, very dirty. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, this from I've read several different versions of this, but it seems as though the gunpowder was primarily made from um, from surplused out artillery powder, and they used a lot of carb- carbonic acid anyway to um, to break the stuff down and then remanufacture it, which added a lot of carbon content. Oh, oh, oh. and so you get a higher velocity, which meant you were going to end up with um, higher cyclic rate for sure. your rifle and full automatic combined with a very, very dirty gunpowder. In a human environment. In a human environment. <clears throat> On top of all this, cult executives in their enthusiasm had proclaimed that this was a self-cleaning rifle. <laughs> and so not only did the Army not issue proper cleaning equipment, they didn't even train the guys how to clean these things. Oh, my goodness. So you have this this perfect storm of bad things happening and all of a sudden here's this rifle that had lots of good reviews on it suddenly failing miserably under all kinds of conditions uh, in Vietnam. Um, Hundreds of American soldiers were killed because their rifles failed them at at a very inopportune Mm -hmm. time. Shades of Battle of Little Bighorn. Very, very much. In fact, the same problem was extant between the Springfield trapdoor of 1873 and the M16 rifle is that it wouldn't eject. You couldn't pull the cartridge out. If you, if either one of those troopers, soldiers, had had the cleaning rod, he could have knocked it out, but they didn't have them. So, so how long did it take for the Army to start issuing cleaning kits? Well, not too long, uh, about a year or so. But most guys just brought one with them or they had one sent from home. They'd have Dad buy him a twenty two cleaning kit at the local hardware store and send it over to Vietnam wow. for him. Um, and because of this, the, the M16 got a really, really bad reputation. Uh, there was a congressional hearing in a study in 1968 which came up with all these things. Uh, and the Army did a lot to improve it. They improved the gunpowder. Well, didn't they also screw up with the powder saying, well, we need this powder to work in all environments? So they, they milled it so it would be great in an Arctic environment. Correct. Correct. It was, it, yeah, the, the gunpowder was better in an Arctic environment. Uh, it didn't lose velocity. Uh, it was like, you're sending these guys into Vietnam, not Alaska. We're not invading right. Siberia. We're invading Vietnam. 
So um, there were a lot of screwball things going on. McNamara, in fact, in 1968, shut down the U.S. Uh, National Armory of Springfield, Massachusetts, because these guys had spent so much time in making a case for their own rifle, the M14. Uh, a lot of it was a not invented here syndrome. They wanted to make sure their own product was given best billing. And so they, uh, they jimmied the tests. They, they were, um, <laughs> they lied under oath and, and jimmied tests and stuff. And so McNamara just said, okay, you're all done. You're done. Wow. Uh, and closed the plant down, closed the, this armory down that had been established in uh, 1790 by George Washington. Now, one of the things that had been questioned with the the stoner design was a um, the gas system. The gases of the expanding, exploding gunpowder are what are used to operate the system. And most automatic and semi-automatic weapons use what is called a piston or um, a piston system. They yeah. have a... Yeah, in fact, we um, we had a question that came in from, uh, let's see, uh, John Matthews. From John Matthews. <laughs> oddly enough, who was curious as to why Stoner chose uh, one one form over another uh, instead of the gas piston. Yeah, well, the, the, the M1 Garand, M14, the AK-47, the... FAL, all these rifles use the gas piston system. And what that means is you've got this long piston rod that goes clear out over or under the barrel to wherever your gas port is, a hole drilled into the barrel. And gas is siphoned off from the barrel, goes into a little gas chamber, and pushes this rod back. And that's what operates your um, your bolt it moves the bolt back so that it can e uh, uh, extract eject and feed in a new cartridge direct impingement actually this was developed by the french for their mas 49 rifle which is by the way excellent excellent gun um, but direct impingement means that the piston is actually part of the bolt or the bolt carrier technically you have a tube which goes way out to the front part of your rifle, about two-thirds of the way out down the barrel. And where the hole is in the barrel, it feeds up into this gas tube. And the tube, you know, it just keeps on going down the tube back towards the bolt. And when it hits the little piston or um, bolt carrier, it does all the work. So you still have a piston on there. It's just much further from the mm -hmm. gas port than in a, the standard uh, piston system. The, the, the disadvantage of this is that it tends to dump a lot of, of uh, powder fouling into your chamber or sure. into, into your operating system. So in the case of this dirty powder that the U.S. Army was using, it caused it to be absolutely filthy, and you had to really clean it well and often. How hard is it to clean that chamber? Um, oh, it's not that hard. It's just it. it <laughs> it's just a pain. It's a pain. Um, with the um, with the direct, or pardon me, with the with the piston, you know, the longer piston rod mm -hmm. system or uh, um, whatnot. Anyway, it um, you just don't have to deal with that. The gas is kept 
way to it through the front of the barrel of the rifle mm-hmm. and you don't get any of that stuff dumping into your chamber. Okay. The advantage of the direct impingement though is you don't have all this machinery on the front of your barrel flopping around. It's cheaper, it's lighter, and you don't have you don't have to deal with all these different waves of um oh kinetic energy. Kin- yeah, energy conflicts. Yeah, because when the bullet goes down the barrel, it causes some wave action in the barrel. It causes it to vibrate. And then if you're sending another piece of metal back the opposite direction, mm-hmm. waving, it, it does reduce accuracy. Uh, one of the things about the M16 Air 15 system is that it's renowned for its extraordinary accuracy. And one of the reasons is this direct impingement system. Um, it's very accurate. Mm-hmm. I have to brag on Gordon a little bit. We, some of you might know, we kind of live in a little rural area. In fact, earlier you probably heard my rooster crowing <laughs> in the background. Um, because we have chickens and we live near the woods, we occasionally have predator problems. And a couple of days ago, we had a predator problem. And the predator problem was dropped with one bullet, <laughs> one shot, <laughs> from Gordon's little AR. Dropped him like a rock. Yeah, he did not suffer and nope. didn't bleed out much either. It just, boom, he was down. So the, um, at any rate, the Army has adopted this rifle. They've gone through all kinds of issues with it and are starting to get a decent piece. They um, made some um, fixes, which they call the Air, the, pardon me, the M16A1, which had a couple of different fixes. One of them was the chrome-lined barrel and, and chamber. Another was a goofy thing that they put on the side. It's called the... Um, uh, bolt advance um it's it's this goofy thing well probably not call it just a bolt event anyway it's the the um advance um thing on it anyway it's a a goofy thing that's a little designed, button thing that sticks out <laughs> yeah i've got the name somewhere in the back of my head and it'll come out before the end of the show at any rate it's designed so that if your the cartridge was not completely chambered you could push this little thing and it would push your bolt oh. forward the Marine Corps didn't like it because they said, yeah, if you've got a problem, it's just going to make it worse. You're going to jam it worse than it was. So we don't want them on there. But and the Army, since they buy a whole lot more things they <laughs> of any given type, they get, the, uh, they get what they want. So you have the uh, forward assist. That's what it's called, the forward assist, uh, and a couple other things on the M16 rifle. The cartridge that was used, um, the official designation was the M193 cartridge, uh, had a 55-grain bullet. Now, most of my... The Americans might know what a grain is of weight. Most Europeans probably have no idea. No, it's not a gram. It's a grain. Um, It's a nice old English uh, measurement, which nobody but the United States <laughs> uses anymore. Uh, uh, but at any rate... It sounds 19th century. Nah, it's a lot older than that. No. Uh, it's, you know, gra- it's a, a grain equals like a grain of wheat. Oh, okay. So it's very, very light. Anyway, the, uh, it's 55 grain, and it suffered from um, well, being a little light. An advantage was it went really, really fast. Uh, but didn't hold its kinetic energy for a whole long time. It was a sprinter, not a marathoner. Exactly. Now, the United States in about 19, well, in the 70s, started 
insisting that NATO now go over to this new cartridge, this new uh, bullet, smaller bullet, the 5.56. What's funny is that the U.S. Army had insisted that they not go over to a smaller cartridge about 15 years before. And I was insisting that they do so. But the Europeans said, well, we don't really like that bullet. So the Belgians, again, the Belgians, started playing with that and came up with their SS-109, which has a much heavier bullet, a 69-grain bullet. Um, pardon me, a 62-grain bullet. 69s came later. 62-grain bullet, which was eventually adopted as the NATO standard and the U.S. standard of the M855 cartridge. It doesn't have as much uh, velocity as the lighter M193 bullet does, uh, but it is stable at much longer distance, which is actually not as good. It's more accurate at long range, but it doesn't do as much damage to your opponent. One of the things that has been mm. found in our involvement in the Middle East is that unless you hit somebody in the head, you have to shoot them a couple times. Whereas with the older cartridge, because it was going so fast, the bullet would basically disintegrate when it hit. You know, it would, it would um, enter the target and, and then just break and up, fragment. fragment, causing massive internal injuries and very lethal. The newer one uh, makes a nice hole, punches a nice hole right through, uh. which, is what a M5, one, which is what the 55 grain will do at long range. But this one does it all ranges. So unfortunately, most troops end up having to shoot their opponent twice or three times. Oof. So even though this newer cartridge was billed as more humane, uh, shooting somebody three or four times isn't necessarily more humane. Yeah, uh, the, the sloppier, quote unquote, round, that's going to drop somebody right now. Generally. Yeah. Um, the first rifles that were um, issued had a what they call a 1 in 14 twist and uh the bullet would turn a complete one complete turn in 14 inches this is discovered it had a little bit of yaw and twist mm -hmm. at long ranges but it would also spin it would tumble Ooh. uh once it hit the target and also disintegrate so it was very effective the army wanted more accuracy so they went to a 1 in 12 but <clears throat> the modern uh, modern ones have a one in seven twist to stabilize this longer, uh, more heavier bullet. In the 1980s, long after Vietnam is over, the Marine Corps concluded that they either needed a new rifle or they needed to revise the M16. Theirs were wearing out, and they weren't very pleased with some of the the accuracy potential, mostly due to the sights and the light barrel. The light barrel was due to Armalite wanting to make the lightest possible weapon. But it was found by not just the Army, but the Marines and various others that if you use the barrel as a pry bar, uh, it bends. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're talking Marines here. Mm -hmm. If you put a bayonet on it and you try to pry, it bends the barrel and bad things happen. So the Marine Corps wanted a heavier barrel, which is also more accurate and also helps to lower the... Um, climb well the climb and uh dissipate heat oh, better sure so it seems like it would have a longer life too a tougher um no because it's all based on the wear on the rifling oh, on the inside oh. uh but 
working with Colt, they came up with what was designated the M16A2 rifle. And the Marines adopted this in 1983. The Army followed suit a few years later. Um, but the, it's a supremely good target rifle. The Marines, being into long-range accuracy, basically built a target rifle. However, it still had its shortcomings, although it, it lasted quite well. Um, and by 2000, the uh, various people had decided, eh, this old thing, it's good, but we need it updated yet again. During Vietnam, the Army Special Forces had experimented what was called the XM-177. It was basically the Colt Commando. It was a, a carbonized version. It had a little uh, collapsible stock, and it had a very short barrel, a 12-inch barrel. And it was very well-loved by those who used it. Um, in fact, a lot of Special Forces guys who had been using AK-47s dropped the AK-47s like a hot potato and went to the these Colt Commandos. Hmm. Um, We'll get into the AK-47 versus M-16 debate in a minute here. But Colt had merely been working on these things, and they had come up with what they called, with what they called the M-4 carbine. It was an updated version of the Colt Commando. It had a 14-and-a-half-inch barrel instead of a 12-inch barrel, which meant it could, you know, uh, had better velocity, better range, better accuracy, all that sort of thing. But it was still very light and handy. had the same old collapsible stock, but was, um, anyway, well, it, it became a very popular gun. And in the last 15 years, it has been adopted by the Army and the Marine Corps as their standard service rifles. They don't have the same range potential quite as an M16 with a 20-inch barrel, uh, M16A1, M16A2, or even M16A4, but they're still quite serviceable rifles. Now, one of the things that has plagued the system, the AR-15-M16 system since, well, since Vietnam, has been the question of reliability. A lot of people bring out the AK-47 as, well, this is the pinnacle of reliability, and M16 isn't. And not so much. Um, I've seen them both jam. Uh... The professionals who have used both in combat generally prefer the M16 or the, the AR platform. Primarily, one of the best things the AR has going for it is it's much, much, much more ergonomic than the AK-47. The AK-47 or AKM system was designed to issue out to pretty uneducated peasants and be able to produce a huge volume of fire. The M16 was designed to hand out to educated people to fire accurately and with at high volume. Um, and so it's, yeah, that's a little more finicky, but certainly, certainly I think a better rifle all told. Interesting thing, there's these days in politics, there's a lot of concern of magazine capacity the present-day M16 and M4 rifles are issued with a 30-round magazine. What's kind of interesting is that the original Colt or Armalite design was uh, with a 20-round magazine. The reason for this was purely political. M1 carbines and submachine guns had 30-round magazines. 
the M14 rifle had a 20-round magazine, and the old BAR, automatic rifle, had a 20-round magazine. Therefore, rifles have 20-round mag magazines, mere carbines have 30-round magazines. Therefore, Armalite and Colt had, Colt had bought the license from Armalite, which is why there's that distinction. Anyway, in their sales pitch, they wanted the Army to look at this as a rifle, not as a carbine. So they issued them with a 20-round magazine. They certainly had the ability to make 30-rounders, and they did, but they issued 20-round magazines to all of our troops in Vietnam going up against AK-47s with 30-round magazines, purely a political sales pitch. So there, there was no tactical reason for this, no practical reason. Absolutely no real reason for doing it. It was just purely a political um, sales pitch. The uh, Today, it's really hard to actually find 20-round magazines. Uh, virtually all of them made are 30-round magazines. That's the standard. So when people talk about, oh, these huge high-capacity magazines, well, that's the standard capacity magazine. Right. You can buy a 50, 40, 50, or even 100-round magazine for the thing, but the standard is actually 30. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think of, I'm, I'm not super gun educated like you, and I don't think of a thirty round magazine as a high capacity magazine. I mean, when you want to talk a hundred round drum, that's high capacity. That's, that's a lot. You want to yeah. talk a belt fed, that's high capacity. But a thirty round mag, yeah, yeah, and that's that's the standard issue and has been since the nineteen eighties. Um, the M4 carbine as issued out today, the M4, M4A1, I believe. Uh, is a phenomenally reliable, accurate, serviceable weapon. The um, the troops who've used these in combat have nothing but praise for them. Recently, there was a little shoot 'em up in Afghanistan, in which some of the um, some army generals, retired army generals who probably have uh, somebody backing them with money to make them say this, were complaining about the M M4 systems. Uh, saying, claiming that they, they failed at the critical point. But any gun would fail at a critical point after you've fired eight or ten 30-round magazines on full auto through oh, them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tests have been done on this concept. And you melt your barrel. That's exactly what happens. Ah. That's exactly what happens. You melt your barrel, the barrel starts to droop, and then it blows up. Yeah. Um, and the machine guns did the yeah, exact same dude. thing. So there's a push, you know, it was, it was blamed on this direct impingement system, which had nothing to do with it because you can blow up uh, an AK-47 doing the exact same thing. You melt your barrel. But starting from, you know, as a, as a gee whiz, Star Wars, Buck Rogers kind of idea and moving on into its very difficult teething period in Vietnam, the AR system has evolved to become the premier uh, infantry rifle of the 21st century and also interestingly enough is the most popular rifle in the united states today you wouldn't think of it you think well we like bolt actions and stuff mm -hmm. but i figure when uh, when wired magazine has an article on how cool they are and how modular they are and you can do anything with it and it's really they a are. cool thing they, you could put a lot of cool toys on your ar you can 
one of the neat things about the development was that, in again, in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, people started working with what's called the M1913 Picatinny rail system. It's a uh, this system of basically T slots on a on a piece of aluminum that is fitted on either the top or various parts sides all over the place on these rifles. Um, and you can attach a lot of different things to it. They're called, otherwise called attachment points. Uh, you can put scopes. Mm-hmm. You can put lights. auxiliary sights, lights, um, grenade launchers. I mean, all kinds of fun stuff. Cup holders. Cup holders. <laughs> uh, bottle cap. Just kidding. Openers. Yeah, bottle openers. But they, you, you can't actually get the attachment for the bottle cap opener. Oh, I, if, if you go online, you can find memes where people have ridiculously kitted out their ARs with all kinds of impossible things. It's, yeah, and they make them weigh about 20 pounds. Yeah, and it's just basically it's a joke. It, yeah. Pretty much. Um, one thing I do want to point out, though, that the term Picatinny comes from Picatinny Arsenal. Mm. It's a U.S. arsenal, and I think it's the Carolinas. Um, a lot of, mm, shall we say, slightly uneducated people want to use a different term. Uh, the old... Pickaninny? Pickaninny, yeah. I've heard it... makes it, no sense. It does make no sense. Pickaninny, for those of our listeners who are not from the United States, um, it's a very old racist term for black children. Mm-hmm. And um, having been... I'm pushing 60. My grandparents were born in the 1890s. I heard it used. Oh, I heard it used too. <laughs> but... Um, it's pretty derogatory and racist. And when people say, oh, there's a pickaninny. No, 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 no. Don't, please don't use that term. That's just oh. not the right term. It's a picatinny rail system. Yeah. Oh, well, there it is. And there's a lot of different companies apparently making ARs. You, Absolutely. If you go to a gun shop, a gun show, go online, grab a catalog. I mean, I want to get an AR. Yeah, well, make sure you're getting a good one because there's a lot of people making them and they're, they're not all equal. No, they are not. By parts, they're very modular. They're, um, a person can buy, you know, parts from here, there, and everywhere and put one together. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, you have to register or sign for the lower part of the receiver, the part that has the trigger group and whatnot. The reason for that is that the original's which uh, M16s, which were uh, select fire. Well, they wanted to make sure you didn't get one of those. So it's the lower that is the controlled part. But the cat is out of the bag, actually, in regards to that. There are several companies now offering offering downloads so that you can make one on your 3D printer. Oh. And so... But, but isn't the lower metal? It is, but they've redesigned them so they can make them out of plastic. Oh. And they work. They work quite well, in fact. Again, the cat is out of the bag on that one. Yeah. Um, but they've become an extremely popular part of the American shooting culture over the last few years because of their accuracy potential, because of their modularity. And a person can basically build one exactly how they want it to fit them perfectly. Mm-hmm. And it's like nobody else's gun. Well, I'd heard years ago people talking about him as a good varmint gun for those of you who don't live in a rural community, basically a gun that will drop a coyote or a cougar or whatever, and or a raccoon. Um, so 
and I thought, okay, whatever, good varmica. Well, I hadn't really thought about it much until you dropped that coyote the other day. <laughs> it's well, like, well, yeah. yeah, I guess they are. They really are. They're, uh, uh, very, again, a very serviceable weapon. So from Eugene Stoner's idea of using these, you know, space-age technologies from in the 50s and early 60s to becoming sort of iconic in the 21st century, um, it's had a long road. And it's done very well for itself. Um, again, it's the standard infantry weapon of the United States Army and Marine Corps, and they, and the most popular rifle in the United States. So, check out Wikipedia. They've got a good article in there. There's a lot of other good books on it. There's. We'll have some links in the show yeah. notes for some some interesting things. I'll, we'll see if we can dig up a couple of YouTube videos or yeah. something of. of um, and if you're really interested, there's arf.com, <laughs> ar15.com. Oh. Uh, it's a website that is all discussion about AR-15s. And you're going to find some really interesting stuff and some really bizarre stuff and some stuff that may you may go, oh, my goodness. But worth looking at. Worth looking at just to check it out. So thank you very much for listening in. I hope this has been educational for you. Uh, Hopefully you have understood some of the differences in technology and terminology as well. Yeah, and if you've got any questions or comments, want to contribute at all, feel free to contact us either uh, through uh, the PsyCon Slack chat group or at our website at badcatshows.net, or you can email us directly at historyfilesshow at gmail.com. That's all one word, historyfilesshow at gmail.com you can email us directly there or follow us on twitter at history underscore files and you can also ask questions there or leave a comment did you enjoy it did you learn something are you bewildered do you have no idea what gordon's talking about like i do half the time (laughs) or are you annoyed Oh, yeah. Are you annoyed? Do you beg to differ? (laughs) You beg to differ. So we can't respond if you don't tell us. Exactly. So thank you for listening and uh, join us again next time for another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the PsyCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, Visit us at psycon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash psycon, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow. <laughs>